morning, everybody. It is February 16th, 2024. We are still in Heart Month 2024. HCM Awareness Day is coming up in two short weeks. I am joined today during Heart Month from the team or part of the team from Stanford and Palo Alto, California, beautiful town. And I am joined by Dr. Victoria Parikh and nurse extraordinaire, Heidi Salisbury, who everybody thinks somehow are related because our names are somewhat the same. And I get called Lisa Salisbury a lot. I'm wondering if Heidi gets called Lisa or Heidi Salberg. Um, Absolutely has happened. Yes. I take it as a compliment. As do I, as do I. So to start off Heart Month, I, I, I guess I have a kind of little announcement about what happened yesterday. Super excited to share that the HCMA had its first ever briefing on Capitol Hill. My sincere thanks to the entire volunteer team who joined us and to our amazing speakers at the conference, which include Dr. Marty Marin, Dr. Steve Amon, Ryan Gauch from Patch, Deetra DeBose from Atlantic Health, and our wonderful patient spokespeople. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with a bang. Marsha Rosenberg, who is from Pennsylvania and is 81 and three quarters years old. Amy Blair came in, came in and shared a beautiful story about her lost daughter, Jillian. And we kind of started on a high note with a gentleman named Jared Butler, who is currently an HCM patient playing for the Washington Wizards. So big shout out to everybody who came and shared their story and their perspective and they did this in an attempt to help us identify more people with HCM through some federal measures, including adding some questions to the Welcome to Medicare exam about heart health history. So with that simple move, we'll be able to find a lot more seniors at 65, maybe the first time they've had an appointment with a doctor in a really long time. So it's great to have that out there and starting to populate. And we had some great meetings with members of the, of the house there was a lot more collaboration there than some people might suspect. There were some snarky comments here and there about different things, but uh, generally speaking, there was bipartisanship. Everybody has hearts. The other exciting thing that happened while we were at the Hill, so we went on Valentine's Day to invite everybody to our briefing, and then we had our briefing on the 15th. But on the 14th, a piece of legislation that I actually helped create in 2009 actually made it to a hearing. It's been reintroduced every two years or so since then. It's called the Hearts Act. It is about providing some federal funds to the CDC, about cardiovascular disease in the young, preparing high schools for, with AEDs and CPR training, emergency action planning, all kinds of fun stuff. That's really important to making sure that we're, our communities are ready for a cardiac emergency. So it was really an exciting couple of days. Stay tuned for legislative updates from the HCMA. Lots of great photos coming. It was an amazing day. Again, shout out to the Wizards, whose TV station, and yeah, they have a TV station, came out and said thanks. And two big shout outs for HCM awareness resolutions. Oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the woman's name from Texas. And I'm hoping that Julia Ross can send it to me. We had a wonderful volunteer in Texas get us an HCM day resolution from the state of Texas. I promise I'll get your name in a minute. And then to Bill Ordaus and her son who helped us get Washington, D.C. And uh, it looks like we have some traction to get the HCM Act enacted in Washington, D.C. as well. So 
that's my update of what I did in the past two days. And now we're going to talk everything Stanford. Okay. Congratulations, Lisa. Thank you. Great day yesterday. It was a big day and that was a big day to download. So you'll see pictures. It was awesome. It was incredible. Incredible. I'm exhausted though. Like, of course you are. 15,000 steps. Absolutely. What an amazing thing. So awesome. It was great. So really impactful. We hope. I'm going to start with Heidi because by time I've known Heidi longer (laughs) and then we're going to talk to Victoria and we'll see a little bit about there. So Heidi, we've known each other. You just informed me 18 years. This is true. This is I'm true. not quite sure that's possible as we're both 21. We were very young when we met. I know. We were we were go we were we were go-getters from the beginning. We were. Yeah. We, were we were very we were very advanced for our age. Yeah. So what's what's been going on in the past 18 years? Like We've been where busy. do we start where we are? I know. I know. Yeah. So throwback a little bit 18 years ago, we we heard about someone named Lisa Salberg who was start was was you know the queen of of hcm advocacy so that was how we were connected through a mutual colleague and my memories are you know you coming out to stanford to guide us on how to set up a program that would best serve hcm patients and families and so that was you know that was the heart and soul of that first meeting and so we've been working for 18 years to to improve the care and to meet the needs of the community and how that has evolved over the last almost two decades is pretty incredible. And I know we're going to touch on some of those high points in this conversation, but yeah, that was the start was start of our relationship and, and we've just been tweaking and improving and responding to the HCM community through our, you know, through our own patient relationships and experiences and definitely through a constant and supportive partnership with the HCMA and Lisa. And here we are 18 years later. And podcasting. And podcasting. And we have exciting new therapies and we have hope and, and we have a whole lot, of, we have a lot of work to do. That we do. That we do. So I can remember meeting Victoria at the summit in Boston, I believe it was. Yeah, that's right. That was a great summit. Just it full was. of such brilliant humans and great patients and patient advocates. I like the term brilliant humans. I've been using that a lot because I think I just like the term. Yeah. Good human. Good humans. Yes, absolutely. It's simple. It's simple. (laughs) So eight years ago, you, you came to the summit, but you joined the team a little bit before that. Yeah, I've been around for about 10 years now with the with the Stanford Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Disease, almost 10 years, and, and worked really closely with Heidi during that entire time, as well as our founding director, Ewan Ashley. And in the last year, I've stepped into the role of, of director of the center and just has been an amazing experience to get to work even more closely with Heidi and our fantastic leadership to better the lives of, of HCM patients and patients with other genetic cardiovascular diseases as well. And while we are the HCMA and while our focus is HCM specific, HCM is a spectrum of disorders. And the value of an inherited heart disease model really lets us say, okay, thick heart, but why? Yes. And the but why can literally be a game changer, can't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, we've been talking today just offline about the different therapies that are becoming available for HCM from CMIs, which I know Heidi will have a lot to say about the amazing program that she spearheaded at Stanford around supporting our patients through that journey with Mavicampton, the cardiac myosin inhibitor that's currently commercially available. But additionally, I think that when we can make a diagnosis of something that folks sometimes referred to as a mimic of HCM. So something that's not because the heart is working too hard and getting thick, but because some proteins are being deposited or there's some other issue. When we can make that diagnosis, there actually are therapies that have been around for a long time, or even some that have been proved to be efficacious in the last five years that can be extraordinarily helpful. So you're absolutely right. Understanding the root cause of disease is what we do. And we're so privileged to, to work with a patient population that, that will do that with us. That is awesome. So you brought up CMIs. So a term that doesn't typically flow off Americans' tongues, what's a CMI? We know what other classes of cardiac drugs are, but cardiac myosin inhibitors, they're game-changing. We've got one clinically available for almost two years. It'll be two years in, in April. I remember the day. I remember the day. I remember the phone call. I was, I, I, I got the call like really early. Like I think I was the third call outside of BMS that it happened. So I was really happy about that. And now we have a second myosin inhibitor in trial looking quite promising and we'll have options. Heidi, tell us how myosin inhibitors have changed the game. Cardiac myosin inhibitors, you know, having been front and center over the last two years while we've experienced the change in patient's life has been amazing. You know, first, it's really important to just make sure that you're selecting the right always the right treatment medication or procedure for the specific patient, because as you, you both just pointed out, HCM is different in every individual. And the HCM, you know, you coined that phrase, the great masquerader, that HCM is the great masquerader, which I've always interpreted as explaining to families that, you know, your sister's heart might look completely different than your brother's heart, than your mother's heart. So keeping that in mind, as we've now have the option for, for cardiac medicine inhibitors. It's been incredible to see how many of the HCM hearts respond. Just the changes we see on echocardiograms, reducing gradients, and most importantly, the changes we see in patients' lives, reducing their symptoms, improving just their quality of life, and then over time, shifting their perspective on what they can do how their heart feels in their body takes time for the mind to follow. You've lived with this heart for decades. Are you telling me I'm taking this little pill and it's gonna reverse my heart disease? It's gonna change the way blood flows? I mean, even though you know you might accept it in concept, it still takes time for the, the heart to change and your body to respond to that. And so I, we've really seen that around, because it, every heart is different and every person is different, people's experience is different, but when they start to settle in to, you know, quote unquote, their their new part, they really just are experiencing, in some cases we hear, you know, miracle. I feel better than I've ever felt. I didn't know that I could do this. I'm not thinking about where the stairs are. I'm not thinking about taking an elevator. I'm, I'm not thinking about how I talk to people when I'm hiking because I can talk the whole time I'm hiking things like that, that are just very life-changing. They're, they're perspective changing. It's an incredible honor to be witnessing this, this time for patients, especially for families and individuals that have been impacted for generations. I spoke to a woman in DC who is on 
a myosin inhibitor. She said for like a year and a half, she's like, this isn't working. It's not working. It's not working. And then her echo changed and then the gradient went away, but it was a bit more protracted than I'd ever heard before. It was two years almost after her first dose. Now she was in a trial first and then went on long-term extension, but you know, maybe she was on placebo up front or something. I don't, I don't know all of the details, but it's really kind of amazing. We're learning so much about this class of drug. Yeah. And how it varies and how dosing might be different, metabolism of the the agent. These are all incredibly important factors. And I will double, triple, quadruple down on the concept that myosin inhibitors should be handled by centers of excellence like yourselves, because the anatomy of HCM is so varied. Hmm. If you don't have expertise in understanding the nuances, I don't necessarily think you should be prescribing. Lisa, HCMA point of view, but why Why do you think I have this point of view, guys? I think you're right, Lisa. And you're always right, first of all. But I think also <laughs> that, you know, it is tough to even get an echocardiogram that measures an LVOT, right? A, a, a heart's obstruction correctly, right. right? It's tough to train folks to get the right diagnostic test so that the folks that are interpreting it can see what they need to see, and then to train those folks to know what they need to see, right? And so absolutely seeing someone for diagnosis and, and now for therapy who has seen enough, has seen enough cases to know what that testing means and has trained other folks to show them what needs to be seen in order to make that diagnosis is I think really crucial to understanding how these how these things work. And, and as any part of medicine, right, we be we become specialists so that we can learn how to take the best care of patients, but then we educate. That's the great thing about medicine, right, is that we educate. And so over time, yes, this will be something that can be handled by a lot of folks and we are engaged in that process. But I agree with you that you need a good good data and good analysis. And that's where we are right now. Echocardiograms are not all created equal. Mm-hmm. How they're performed, how they're interpreted. I know we're going, a lot of us are going to a meeting in, in New York in a couple of weeks with the American Society of Echo to discuss the problem of echoes in HCM and why we need to kick up the game nationally. But I still think some people may not get the full message that a center of excellence, HCM echo, is not the same thing that you're getting at the corner cardiologist. Sometimes we can get some decent data from that community cardiologist, but the number of images, the angle, the interpretation, the understanding of the nuanced anatomy, what do you guys see? What Do you see the same problem? Do you see changes? Absolutely. And I, you know, Heidi, I know has been um, working with some folks on how we can actually, you know, improve the sort of first, the question of, am I looking for the right thing? Right? Like, how do I know that this is the patient that I need to be really careful to really march that echocardiogram down the LV, right? The left ventricle. So I make sure I don't miss an obstruction. Is this the person which I need to make sure that I get all three different angles of the LV so that I'm sure I'm measuring the exact amount of thickness that I that I know is there? So certainly I think there's a way to train folks. And I think this is an opportunity, Lisa, because for the first time, we really have a precision medicine for HCM. And so for the first time, folks are saying like, this is a more common disease than we thought, right? It's out there. And this is HCM awareness month, right? Like, we should be thinking about how we get the message out there. But you're right that the message has to come with that caveat of, hey, 
there are folks out there around the country and the HCMA has been so huge in establishing this, a network that knows how to do this. And yes, absolutely, we can teach and work closely with community cardiologists to give care, but there are places close by these patients that can give them that high quality imaging because the training has been done. I'm seeing something new pop up. I kind of like what I'm seeing because I think they've been there the whole time, but we weren't seeing them. Don't know if you've seen it out by your way yet. It's kind of kind of more East Coast right now. No, maybe, maybe Central, Central United States. Women. Women. Over 60. Okay. Lifetime of symptoms, but mostly dismissed. Now being diagnosed with HCM, but the wall measurements are 13, 14, and they're obstructed. We used to think all human hearts are created equal in the same size. So a cutoff measurement of 1.5 is your diagnosis of HCM. Should a six foot six man and a four foot 11 woman have the same wall measurements in their heart? Great point, Lisa. Yeah. Great point. And this is something that folks, you know, famous contributors to this field, Carolyn Ho, Charlene Day, Jacopo Olivoto, have been saying for years is that although, yes, thickness can be the, the harbinger, right? It can be the tip off to the, something being wrong. It's not the root cause of the disease, right? Hypercontractility, which then leads to hypertrophy in some cases, and the way that heart is shaped, right? The size of that heart, like you talked about, it's not a firm cutoff. There are folks who likely will benefit from a cardiac myosin inhibitor that don't necessarily have a wall thickness of, you know, 1.6 or whatever the insurance or, or, you know, recommendation cutoffs are. And so as we continue to, to use these medications, our documentation at centers of excellence in patients who we select for these drugs, because we know from our experience that they need that reduction in contractility, it's going to be super important for all of us to be describing that in the literature and to the community. And I interrupt. I, um, I just want to make sure that Heidi has a chance because she's this, this effort to really collect our centers at uh, our patients at our center. So Heidi, I'm just hoping that you'll have a chance to jump in and talk about your experience with that. We're speaking specifically about echo, the echo with the C, with CMI, or just the patient population too. I think you've seen a lot of patients that that you knew needed cardiac myosin inhibitors. That was a challenge to to get them the medication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thanks for. So just like Dr. Parikh is saying, I think that we've worked very hard to respond to the needs of patients as we've evolved over time. And now with cardiac mass and inhibitors being available to treat the underlying disease, we've needed to respond. And to do that, you want to make sure that you build this, a high level of practice, which includes the right echocardiograms, includes a nursing staff that understands how to prepare a patient to get the right echocardiogram. What I am hearing that I want to really follow up on is that I found that to really get patients who are on cardiac myosin inhibitors what they need, it's best to partner with the community. So, and to help problem solve, if there is an issue with a community echocardiogram, we still need, ideally, it's helpful to get those echocardiograms in a, in a patient's community. And so, like you both said, it's an education opportunity. And I think it's best that we're leading this education opportunity. It's both an education opportunity for the local community and it's HCM awareness, bringing attention to HCM awareness and diagnostics and some of the challenges and complexities of these diagnostics and being supportive to them. Hey, we're here. Hey, please. Ideally, we see the patient first and continue to see the patient. And then maybe there's an opportunity once things are all set and stable to stay close to home, which is a win. A win for logistics for patients that reduces barriers, access yep. to care, and it also improves, I think, 
education about HCM and the care of the HCM patient for that whole community. And I think it happens one patient at a time that the the only silver lining of a patient who gets a quote unquote bad echo is that it might be an opportunity to make it better for the next patient in that community. And so we've worked hard to make sure that one, we have a high standard of, of care for our patients. They're safe on CMIs and that we learn right along with them about what it looks like to take care of a patient on CMI longitudinally. And then second, you know, how can we partner with the community to improve the care of patients with HCM in general and with the addition of CMIs? The great part of CMIs is they are improving quality of life for many patients. The complicated part about CMIs, or one of the complicating parts, is the number of echoes that are needed and the scheduling. I do have a kind of important update to share that I found out while I was in DC, and that is there's been a slight change to the REMS program. Did you know this? No, tell me more. I don't have all the details yet. It's just a slight tweak for those of you who are traveling and going to be out of country or not available to receive your shipment, there will now be a pathway to get more than 30 days. Oh, that's great. Great. It's a tiny little change, but it's meaningful. I I know it's come up with the number of people traveling out of country or somebody who's kind of on the road a lot and there was there were some problems. So we brought in real life to a label and said, no, it's not quite working for us. And we've got that correction. And I think over time, the REMS program, the risk evaluation and mitigation system set up to ensure no heart failure acutely occurs. I think over time, it'll change. It'll evolve. And maybe we won't need so many echoes, but right now safety is key. We need that number of patients to prove that things are safe and when to intervene. But I'm going to close the chapter on CMIs for a moment, unless anybody else has any final thoughts. You know, one thing is just, I know we kind of threw a lot of acronyms out there. So REMS, the REMS program, like you just explained, I think that it is, you know, it's a safety check because Mavicampton is a novel therapeutic. The FDA added another layer of regulation that's called REMS. And what it means to the patient is it means that there are additional safety checks that both the patient has to to go through and the team, the clinical managing team has to go through in order to ensure that you're safe on this medication. And that does mean in this case that you have additional echocardiograms like Lisa mentioned. And if you don't have these echocardiograms, then your medication is not dispensed to you. Wow, that sounds kind of difficult and like a lot of hoops. But I have to tell you that once you get through those hoops and that takes some support, patients feel so well on Mavicampton that they fall into a routine. And I feel like the feedback I'm getting from patients now now managing 70 patients on Mavicampton is that those logistics are completely tolerable for the benefit that they're having in their in their lives. Well, I, I hope that like everyone else, I hope that that the REMS program will eventually be lifted because CMIs have been safe for patients. I really want to be vocal about it. Doesn't have to be a barrier to getting a patient on CMI. Such an important point, and and just to as you're saying, Lisa, bookend this discussion. I know that you know we have now reported our initial real world experience with Mavicampton. It's out in preprint. I know Millen Desai and the Cleveland Clinic Group have also reported theirs, and there are several other centers of excellence around the country. I think with your with your leadership as well, Lisa and Heidi's at Stanford, who are showing that this is safe 
and effective. And so I want patients to know that we are with you. We are working towards making it easier to get on this medication as we get more experience with it, but to do that safely. So thank you all so much for your patience as we as we get you there. And as Heidi's saying, it doesn't have to be an insurmountable barrier. And if you are having any difficulties getting your prescription filled, please contact the HCMA and we will help guide you through the process. And if we need to go back channel to get some things done, we've been very successful in that. Anytime I see any barrier to somebody getting access, a couple of phone calls, clear a couple of pathways and ta-da, it's seeming to happen quite easily. Hang in there. There will be more coming as we've evolved in HCM. Just mentioned that we had a briefing on Capitol Hill with an NBA player who has HCM. That's not something we would have talked about 18 years ago, is it, Heidi? No. No, it's not. And I've said this in previous podcasts and I'll say it again. We weren't wrong 18 years ago by telling somebody like this, this is not a good idea for you. Your risks are too high or too unpredictable. We have evolved through partnership and we continue to evolve in our knowledge through partnership and sharing through things like the Live HCM project, which we were a happy partner in from concept to delivery. And we've followed more patients. We've got more data. Victoria, what do we know today that was so different? That's so different than what we knew 18 years ago. It's such an important study, Lisa. And thank you for your leadership on Live HCM. Of course, Rachel Lampert and, and Charlene Day, who, who really, I think, led the effort. As you're mentioning, this came out of the realization that we had working with many of our patients that they felt scared to exercise or they really felt like their lives were horribly affected by the fact that they were being told that it wasn't safe because we didn't know, right? And we were trying as a community to be as protective as possible. So, you know, we started with a trial called Reset HCM in 2014, again, led by Sarah Saberi and with, again, with your help to show that moderate exercise for folks with HCM was not associated with more life-threatening arrhythmias, was not associated with worse outcomes for our patients, and in fact was associated with an increased VO2 max, which is sort of a surrogate for how much your heart can do with the maximum exercise, right? What is your exercise capacity? So that was really good news. And then we said, well, okay, moderate exercise, great. We now, we know what moderate exercise is. We can tell our patients about that. We can no longer say things like, you know, you should never do more than play golf. We can start to say, you know what, it's okay to do a five minute warm up and a five minute cool down and do your 30 to 45 minutes of, you know, moderate intensity, 50 to 70%, great. But then I think Rachel and Charlene and you said, but there are patients who want to do more than moderate, right? There are patients like NBA basketball stars, right? Okay. Who that's their livelihood too, right? Like, are we, are we constantly holding people back from something that they might actually be able to safely do? So as you mentioned, Live HCM was a study with a huge effort, 1,600 patients, which is a really big study for HCM. About half of those self-reported vigorous exercise with about 250 of those folks doing competitive sport, something we had recommended against prior, and showed that there was no increase, again, in these bad outcomes for those patients. So I think we're, we're coming into a world now where we've done the studies, thanks to the hard work and leadership that I've mentioned, you and, and others, that shows us that actually it's likely safe. So now we can have a conversation with our patients that's informed. Here's what we know about exercise. 
and here's what we know about what's good for you and, and what might be a risk. And so I think it's been an absolutely eye-opening study for us, and, and it, it helps us really to counsel our patients who are competitive or vigorous athletes. Heidi, when we were back in the day, it was really hard to tell people, no, go sit down. Yeah. And I grew up in an era where I was told if I was active, I, I would die. There was no mincing where it's like, you can't do that sport. You will die. I was 12. It was a little hard to hear. But there are a lot of people who were diagnosed during my generation in the 80s and 90s who were programmed with this bad things will happen to you if you do the things that we tell everybody else are good. <laughs> and it was very conflicting. Like I did not go to a private gym to work out until I was like almost 40 because I, I saw gyms. I'm like, people go there and they die. Right. <laughs> okay. yeah. That yeah. was what I was programmed with. Right. But we started to change our, our ideas on HCM and exercise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we realized the negative consequences of no exercise is obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. Mm -hmm. How do you balance your risk? And it's learning in moderation. Yeah. I still hope for a day. And if anybody would like to fund this study, <laughs> please contact the HCMA and we yeah. can put that money to work. Mm -hmm. I would love a project where we offer families an exercise prescription as a family unit to learn what it's like to be short of breath from exercise, what it looks like from mom looking at child and everybody exercising together. If child has HCM and mom does not, maybe dad does too. They're all exercising together. They can learn the signs and they can learn through nurses and medical professionals who can guide them through, okay, your heart rate is good. Your breathing is hard because you're exercising at a higher level and teach them how to feel safe in their own body and within their own family. I want, I want that study. I think you bring up a couple of really important real life things, Lisa, that really capture what is more the norm for the HCM patient in our experience. And, and that is that, yeah, there's been stigma, especially if you've been diagnosed for a long time, there's, there's definitely this conflicting message about exercise that takes, that as Dr. Parikh shared, we've evolved to a new place, but still it's conflicting because you were told a different message. So I think there's two things. There's just wrestling with that, that message change and this with informed information, like we, like Dr. Parikh just outlined, talking to your team about some type of exercise prescription. Where's the risk threshold then? If, you know, now I can exercise, where's that risk threshold? You, just, I think that helps clarify the conflict. Right. But I think that it's still the norm to feel that conflict, especially if you've had a diagnosis for a long time. But I also think you bring up a second point, which is just about exercise and HCM. It doesn't necessarily feel good to exercise at first with HCM. You might not be exercising because it feels icky. You feel, un you feel an unsafe feeling or you feel a frustrated feeling. And that then limits you and then you don't get the benefits of exercise. Like, you, you know, you, it's, you don't get the metabolic benefits, you don't get the sanity benefits and the social benefits. I think a study like that, sign me up. But I've also found that, you know, talking to, you know, talking to local cardiac rehabs and or just with our own relationships with our patients, getting to them to the point where they adopt some of the things that Dr. Pregardi shared, just adopt a different approach to exercise to edge off those symptoms to get to the point where it actually might start feeling good because there are a lot of benefits to the HCM heart with routine exercise, most notably, even the potential of improving your exercise output, your VO2 max, which is 
something that's supportive for long-term benefit of your heart. So there's two separate things here. There's that, that, that conflicting message that has evolved over time to lift the restrictions of exercise, which, you know, through shared decision-making conversations with your team, we should, you should be able to get some clarification there. And then second, just how to exercise as someone living with HCM so that you can mitigate those frustrating symptoms and get to the good stuff, which yeah. can really be a positive thing in your life. Could not agree more. Do want to take a moment to recognize that there are some people that the hearts are not really great yeah. in terms of compatibility with certain types of exercise. I'm working with a, a family right now. It's a teenager. Significant obstruction. Mm -hmm. significant arrhythmia risk. The sport of his choice is not a good option anymore mm -hmm. after evaluation by one of the leading sports okay. cardiologists in HCM. Yeah. So then it's pivot time mm -hmm. and it's okay. I want to have that competitive edge. And in this young man's case, he loves culinary arts. Awesome. So I might've known a pretty fancy chef and I might've like worked on a private mentorship thing because you know, this is what we do here. And if you live in the North Jersey area, we're actually having a little fundraiser the last Friday of the month. So it's this organization or this event is called A Meal for a Meal, who was a young man lost to HCM from a family in Northern New Jersey. If you're interested, it's on Facebook and the proceeds of this year's event will come to HCMA. Might be a chef and a kid with HCM connected and I did a thing. So cool. That is yeah. Cool. I love how you call it the pivot, Lisa. I think that's such an amazing way to think about it because so many people feel when you tell them, you know, okay, maybe this isn't the right thing for you. I think the way that we talk with that about our patients is so important because it's not that you can never do something you want to do again, right? It's let's find something amazing for you to do that's safe. I love that. Pivotability is critical. I've yeah. lived it over my life. Heidi, how many times have you seen me pivot in 18 years? <laughs> times. It's a little dizzying. You're, you are a pivot master. It's always pivoting. <laughs> and, it's, and it's a beautiful thing too. I mean, yeah, your, your resilience, your resilience is, is, is one of a kind. And it's also a huge part of the success and your leadership with the HCMA for the whole community. We try, we look for opportunities, exercise, great conversation. Thanks for taking the dive in with us on that one. So get assessed by a good HCM program, set your plan, talk about what your wishes are, find the balancing. If you've got to pivot a little bit, there's a whole big world out there. There's a lot to do. Yes. There's all I'm different personal. ways to move. There's all different ways to move, but yes. moving is human. And we and finding a way that's safe for you to move, you should be the standard. In the past 18 years or so, we started to do genetic testing. Do need to make like a programming note here on the genetic testing issue. Don't know if you guys saw the news yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure this is going to develop a lot of questions from the community because we've been using Invitae <clears throat> quite heavily for gene testing in HCM yeah. and mm -hmm. they filed for chapter 11 yesterday. It doesn't mean they're going away. They currently have $168 million in the bank. So they have money to run the organization with. I am a little worried about the field. I don't quite understand what has been so challenging about genetic testing companies staying functional and profitable. Okay, my VC people out there, we need some support of genetic testing laboratories. Yeah. We need to find a more effective way to keep these labs operating because we need their services. I don't know what's quite going to happen. I'm going to put a call over there and see if we can get an idea of how things are going to progress. I think they're in restructuring because it's 11, chapter 11, and hopefully they'll they'll pull out of this, but 
we need them and they're they're a good provider. I hope they find their way out of this. We started with gene testing. 2005-6 was the first commercially available gene test for HCM, three genes, $8,000, I think was the original price. And now we're testing for hundreds of genes at a couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. And that's really cool, but we can't go to the next step, which is gene therapies without good gene testing. Absolutely. I think you're right though, Lisa. I think that Invitae and, and other companies, because this is this is a tough industry to be in, right? Like you have to have the amount of tests ordered to run them in bulk to be able to meet those price points. And let's be very clear, the cost of genetic testing, as you've pointed out, has decreased exponentially since 2005. It's possible now for an affordable test to be done. But let's also be clear that $250 is not affordable for everyone. And so I think that Invitae's programs were amazing around folks who couldn't afford genetic testing. As you say, we as a community need to be there to support and be vocal about the necessity of genetic testing in order to enable our therapies. That's critical because yes, family screening, very important. Mm -hmm. The original reason for genetic testing. But now we're getting to the point finally where we can use that diagnosis to target a therapy. I really do have concerns about sustainability of of the business model. We need it to be supported. And if these companies are putting all this money into genetic therapies, they ought put the same funding into the diagnostic process so we can identify the patients who will eventually be the beneficiaries of all the genetic work that we've done over the past 25 plus years Mm -hmm. in this country on the Human Genome Project. We are so close to personalized medicine but there's this part of the pipeline that's not very fortified. Yeah, it's very critical. And I think, you know, we we could view this news about Invitae as a canary in the coal mine, or, you know, there are things that, as you're pointing out, there's more information we don't have that's going to be really important to understanding what's going on with this specific case. And I think that as someone who's at a center of excellence, right, as someone who's affiliated with academics, of course, there are other genetic testing providers out there. And I think that you're right. We need to, as a community, say, okay, if it costs more, how do we make sure that payers understand, right, our insurance company understand the impact of a positive or negative genetic test, right? How do we get that data out? And how do we improve the diagnostic prowess of a genetic test by doing the studies that need to be done to look at VUSs or variants of uncertain significance? Mm -hmm. It is so super complex, like who has the data? We have worked with companies over the years that have been acquired by other firms or they're just gone. Where's the data? Where did that patient's information go? It may be in their clinical file with their physician, but if they needed to go back to a lab, poof. And how do we maintain that data so that it travels through the generations? I think what you just said about how we're going to be using all of this and payers are going to be dealing with it. Hello, payers. We're speaking to you right now. If you're a payer, you know you're a payer. If you're not sure if you're a payer, you're not a payer. But if you're a payer and we want to really get into personalized medicine, you're going to save money. If you identify patients with a particular disease and treat that disease appropriately, you're going to waste money if you think you know what the disease is and you treat it with a target that's not proper. The genes can help you lead to the therapies that are customized to that population. And then your cost for rehospitalization, side effects, downstream consequences of being on the wrong medication are going to be so much higher. We want to save your money. We are not here to spend your money. We can save your money by getting targeted therapies. This is my former health plan administrator rant. What do you guys think? Good one. 
I agree. Yeah. Hi, Heidi, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, you're seeing you take care of these families from, you know, newborn yeah. to, to new parents and new grandparents. How do you see the genetic testing impacting them? I think this is a transition time and it's important to keep transparency and communication so that we can learn what's going to happen next. But I think this could continue to impact our, our patients and testing moving forward. So I think keeping this front and center, especially through advocacy organizations, is the most impactful way to influence what happens next. But I think definitely it's coming up now almost on a daily basis in clinic where patients are asking about this. So it feels vulnerable. feels like, oh, okay, well, what's gonna, what's this going to look like in a month, six months? And so that's what, what I'm absorbing from the patient perspective. How I respond to that is making sure that we want to keep, I don't want to go backwards. I don't want to go back to where we were year one, where we only had one patient have genetic testing and it cost $4,500. I think keeping our gains is important when we have a transition like this. So that's my focus, make sure that we still keep genetic testing accessible to our patients as a standard of care, not just our patients, but all patients who are at risk for mm -hmm. or being screened for familial cardiomyopathies. To go back to Lisa's point, because that's how you guide personalized and directed therapies that are appropriate and more efficient, whichever way you want to define efficient, deficient in care, efficient, more efficient for care or efficient for cost, either way, more efficient for the patient and their families. That's where, that's where I'm at. We're finally moving in genetic cardiomyopathies into a space of preventive medicine. Yes. Did you ever think that was where we were going to be? Preventive? You're right, Lisa. Genetic diagnosis is the thing that enables that. Absolutely. We have to get that message out there. You just brought up a provocative term, preventative and HCM in the same line. Like mm -hmm. we all know October, mm -hmm. 2023, Cleveland, Ohio, dun, 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 <laughs> first dosed patient with a gene therapy for myosin binding protein C. I'm not going to lie. I literally cried that morning. I wasn't expecting that emotion. There was a lot of emotional stuff, but that moment of going from concept conversations to the conversation of how are we going to select patients for a clinical trial for this? Mm -hmm. What are we thinking about in terms of who are going to be the targets for gene therapy in the future? All of those questions, we don't know yet, but the practice, it happened. Mm -hmm. A patient with the gene that has been stalking my family mm -hmm. for generations, and I'm not being hyperbolic, I can go back to about 1850 and we can find the first early death in the heart family line. Yes, God has a sense of humor. The family tree line that my HCM comes from, there are the hearts, H-A-R-T, from Ireland. Could I make that up if I tried? No, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Lisa, one thing that, you know, when I when you and I were talking after the first patient was dosed with, with gene therapy, you know, I think it was incredible for me to see you go through this experience. I also witnessed you thinking about the fact that now, you know, some of your relatives and might this might change the course for them, those that you dearly love, thinking of your family and how many generations it's been affected. Now in this moment, not only are you moved because of the emotion of a patient and, and their experience, but this hits home, like you're saying, and yeah. can change the course of your living relatives now. It gave me chills again. I never... I thought the way we got out of HCM in my family was going to be to transplant people. Right. I was the first one to transplant. So this is our ticket out. We got to watch and then know when to go. But to think 
that those whose hearts are not as affected with SCAR at this point might someday be a good candidate for this therapy. It was the first time that I had, and I'm, I'm going to use a word that I don't use very often, and it's not a big word, but it's a, it's a tough one for me. I had hope, and I had never really had hope that we could avoid all of the garbage that the rest of us have been through. I mean, I had a stroke at 21. I, I had five implantable devices. I went through all different cardiac meds up to a melanoma to transplant and beyond. And it doesn't end a transplant. It just changes. There's a whole other world that you, you live in, but your heart is healthy. To know that they could get out of it with not having those invasive procedures at the same level, this different kind of therapy. And for my family, it's an AAV9. Explain AAV9. It's a way to package a little piece of DNA that's the right code of DNA for MYBPC3 in this case, and get it directly to the heart. It is a virus. It's an adeno-associated virus, benign, not infectious, except for the areas of the body where it needs to get into, that it's not going to replicate. It goes to the heart. It will go to the liver a little bit. It will go to some skeletal muscle a little bit. But using the right set of tools, you can actually get expression of that protein that's missing or broken in the heart using an AAV. It's pretty amazing amazing. It's mind blowing. I know. I, I will say, and I, you know, I think that number one, we always need to celebrate the wins and have these moments of awe. Like you, you guys have brought us here. Can you believe this? But I think that, you know, we, we still have a long way to go. And oh, yeah. I think everybody knows this in the community and every patient must feel it. For example, when they're being consented for a trial of an AAV, it's not necessarily completely benign. There are definitely risks. And so the point that you made, Lisa, about we need to select the right patient, the patient whose risk to benefit ratio is right for this trial. I think that that is really a point well taken. And I want to express hope that we will, and, and actually certainty that as a community, we will get better at this. We will get better at delivery and we will make these therapies lower risk over time. Mm -hmm. But it is amazing that we're here right now. It's mm -hmm. just awesome. So I'm, I'm going to go into my dream world for a moment. I was looking at some of the genetic therapies that are in pipeline. There are people with HCM that have other things as well. And I, I, the, the potential here. So there's PSK9 genetic therapy they're working on. Mm -hmm. There's familial hypercholesterolemia lines that they're working on. And we yeah. have patients who have issues beyond the HCM. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine a day, maybe in another 18 years, Heidi, we'll be feisty old ladies by then. Uh, we, have, we, have, we have work to do. But can you imagine a day where you come in and you say, I have these three mutations and they say, okay, we're going to concoct an AAV9 for you. Mm -hmm. And we're going to clear up those three issues in one injection. This is my dream. Mm -hmm. It is not real. It's just a dream world that I hope to live in someday. But considering the world I lived in 20 years ago and the world mm -hmm. we're living in today, I don't think that's far-fetched. I don't think it is either, Lisa. I think that the major work we have to do is that delivery mechanism, the AAV9, or there are these other things called lipid nanoparticles and other AAV numbers. You know, we have to get our arms around what that means for our immune systems, right? I mean, we are far too familiar with what immune systems do in transplant. Yeah, we have work to do, but that is that dream is not that far off. I, I completely agree. Kind of cool to dream that way, isn't it? Yeah. That's how we got here, right? That I, I bet we can do this. And then they did it. I think we can. I think we can. So we are concluding our hour together, which has been 
awesome. Yes. It was about a year ago. I was out by you guys. And I'm like, we need to do a podcast. I need, I need the girls team. Nothing against my guy friends. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for for having us. And yeah. And for the, all all the work in the past, present, and for the work in the future. We got a lot to do. And the next thing that we're going to do is working on our HTM Awareness Day activities. So we're going to have kind of a state of the union address. We're going to give a legislative update. You'll see all the pictures and some footage from the Hill. We're going to have an HCM update 2024, which is going to be brought to you by two physicians I've asked to come explain. We have Andrew Wang from Duke, who is currently the president of HCM Society, of which we're all a member of. So he's going to come in with Marty Marin, and we're going to talk about HCM in 2024. And we're going to see what has changed, what might change in the near future and where we're going long term. And then we're going to talk about some of our ambassador programs. Oh, my God. We have so much stuff planned for that night. And we're doing six legislative briefings at the state level. And we have a bill. I don't know if you know this or not, but the HCM Act has a bill in Ohio. So we're going to start moving that bill through. We're hoping to get a bill number in Michigan soon. And we have a few other states that we're moving forward on. So the cadence here is if you can work with your states to recognize HCM Awareness Day, either in perpetuity or for the year, this is an entrance to the legislative body to say, here's a disease you need to be concerned about. And then we come in with the action item. Here's how you can find people. Here's how you can treat people. We're not adding to healthcare costs. We're not asking for a particular test. We're asking for questions and conversation. Let's make sure that people know how to talk to their doctors about their family heart health history. And I'm going to make that kind of our last point because we talked about that as we started and now it's ending at the end. As it is HCM Awareness Day coming up and as it is Heart Month, Dr. Preet, could you give us one message on why it's so important to know your family heart health history? It is so important to know your family heart health history because our family histories are our history. And so when you know what's going on in your family, you know what's going on with you, with your kids, with your siblings, and you can bring that to a center of excellence and we can help you work through it. A family history, as the FH Foundation likes to say, is not a diagnosis. So bring your family history to one of our centers and and we'll help you. Fantastic. Heidi, any parting words before we run away? No, happy, happy Heart Month. And of course, happy HCMA Awareness Day that's coming up. And and thank you to Lisa and the whole staff at, at HCMA. We really appreciate our partnership with you guys. And we look forward to continuing the adventure. Absolutely. And a final <laughs> thank you to all of our sponsors. And we include in that Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Biomarin, Tania Therapeutics, Embryo Therapeutics, Edgewise, and a few more that I might forget, but we'll add in in post-production. So thank you to all those sponsors who make these possible. And thank you to the wonderful team at Stanford. If you are looking for any information on how to seek care at Stanford, you can go to our directory listing and we are more than happy to help establish relationships and help you get in and let our great friends take great care of you. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.